thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, I hope tonight is a blessing and encouragement to you and helpful to you in our understanding of the scriptures. Uh, before we start tonight, let's pray and just ask God for his blessings. Our Father and our God, we thank you that we have the privilege of not only having your word, but having the privilege to study it together as the family of God, as brothers and sisters who have been transformed by this word and by your spirit. Lord, uh, guide us into the truths of your word. Uh, we're uh, seeking to understand and study uh, what your servant John has recorded for us in the book of Revelation. And uh, there's a lot of um, what is written in this book that is difficult for us to understand. We are separated from it uh, for almost 2,000 years, and there's a lot of uh, confusing images and language. And Lord, I just pray that you'd give us understanding. And even where we can't uh, understand or maybe agree on individual particulars of how to understand the book, Lord, uh, I pray that we would all agree on the central theme and focus of the message, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and his majesty and his glory. And so, Father, I pray that uh, we would come away with a greater understanding of who you are, your Son, the Holy Spirit, and uh, that uh, we would grow to worship you even more by reading and studying this book together. Lord, bless our time of prayer a little bit later on as well. And we pray this all, Lord, for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we are starting a study of the book of Revelation. And I know that for all of you who are here, who have read through the book of Revelation, you know that that's a daunting task because uh, for about 1920 years or so, give or take, the book of Revelation has been read and interpreted by Christians through the centuries. And uh, that reading and studying of the book of Revelation has given rise to all sorts of different understandings and interpretations of what this book means. And so the, you know, you read uh, the teachings of Jesus and the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and they're pretty straightforward. You know, he says, blessed are the meek. That means be humble, you know, be meek. Don't, don't be proud. Don't be overbearing over other people. Don't seek for position. That's, that's clear. But when we see images with seven heads and 10 horns and, you know, Im images of beasts rising up out of the sea, and what does that mean? It, it, it gets a lot more difficult and gives rise to a lot of different interpretations. And so I, I fully acknowledge that probably not every jot and tittle of what I say you may agree with. You may see it differently. And there's, I'm not even saying that I'm gonna be 100% certain on every little aspect of the interpretation of this book. But I'm gonna give you the best understanding of it that I can, as well as at times comparing how I think is the, the best way to read it and understand it with other views as well that have been taught through the centuries of the church. And Revelation is kind of unique in that it is a book that you really can't just jump into and just start reading, okay, let's just start walking through it, Revelation 1.1, and just start reading it. There are almost some underlying considerations, some underlying assumptions that you have to think about in reading the book of Revelation. And I think one of the reasons why Revelation has been so widely interpreted in all these different ways, and some of these ways really crazy interpretations, and I don't think anywhere close to what 
John meant when he wrote these things down. One of the reasons why I think that is we have all these different interpretations is because uh, folks don't give proper consideration to some of these elements that we're going to talk about tonight that are really just more introductory issues on how to read really any book of the Bible, but really in particular Revelation because it's so unique. And so we're just going to introduce Revelation and introduce some of the, the topics that I think are important for us to understand uh, this book. And so the first major point is context, context, context. And I apologize for the slide. Here's a subtitle there that says the importance of context for interpretation. I'm exporting my notes from one program to another and they're made by the same company. <laughs> you would think you just go and bring it over and everything is the way you left it, but it doesn't always work that way. So uh, this is context, context, context. If you've been in business or real estate or you know, shop for a house, you've heard the phrase location, 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 right? That's the importance of buying a house or buying a piece of land is location. It's important. You want to take into consideration how far it is from key areas, maybe your workplace, school, shopping. You want to consider the neighborhood, where it is, what's the value, is the neighborhood rising, falling, you know, all these different things that factor in to buying a house or buying a piece of land. You got to think about those things first. Well, reading Revelation and really reading many different parts of the Bible, the, the idea of context is so important. And if we ignore this, we will no doubt misread the Bible, any portion of it, but especially Revelation. Now, when we think context, our, probably our mind immediately jumps to, okay, what's, what's around it? In other words, don't just pull a verse out of the middle of something and say, here's what this verse means, without reading the paragraph around it or the verses around it. That's true. That's absolutely right. That is a part of context. But there are so many other contexts, plural, that we don't even think about. But we need to because we are separated from this document, Revelation, by, like I said, some 1,925 years. It was written in a different culture, a different time, a different language, a different genre, different type of literature. It is a very, as a very foreign document to our 21st century Western reading eyes. And so we have to think about these different contexts. And so the first of those is the historical context. The historical context. And this is true for any book of the Bible, but especially books that deal with prophecy and books like in the New Testament that are letters to particular churches or particular groups of people. Interesting thing about Revelation is we have both. So Revelation is shaped like a letter written to churches. And so we have to think about the situation that this letter, this letter from John to churches is being written in. But then it also involves prophecy. So historical context is incredibly important. 
And so as a part of understanding the historical context is who wrote the book of Revelation? Who wrote it? Uh, John. John wrote it. There has been some debate and argument about that through the centuries, but it's pretty much generally been on the fringes. Uh, Not anybody has really well accepted the idea that anybody other than the Apostle John wrote Revelation. So I won't spend a lot of time on that. There have been some more critical scholars who have questioned John's authorship, but from John's own testimony in the book itself, as well as from the testimony of the early church, it's a pretty, pretty strong case that John wrote this book. Which John is this? We have, we have different Johns that are mentioned in the scriptures. This would be one of the 12, the apostle John, one of the 12 that Jesus chose, one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. So this is that John who is writing this, the same one who wrote the gospel of John, the same one who wrote the three letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. This is that John. Um, And so we need to think about who wrote it. Um, So this is the apostle John. When was Revelation written? This is a little trickier. And, but it becomes an important question to interpretation because in order to interpret it properly, we have to know the historical context. So there are really two main views of when Revelation was written. The first of those is that it was written before AD 70 in the reign of Nero. So which would be mid 60s, mid to late 60s or so of the AD era. So in the mid-60s, Nero was on the throne of Rome. He was the Caesar, the emperor. And you don't have to know a lot about ancient history to know that the reign of Nero was not a good time for Christians. Christians were openly, actively persecuted during the reign of Nero. And so there's a lot in the book of Revelation that fits that scenario because there's a lot in the book of Revelation that is clearly dealing with Christians who are going through persecution. And so this could potentially fit that scenario. Those who advocate for a writing before AD 70 generally do so with a particular interpretive lens for the whole book. And that is what's referred to as a preterist or past interpretation of the book of Revelation. And the way that this view understands most of the language and the images, the symbolism of the book is all, at least for the most part, dealing with the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans in AD 70. And so This date for Revelation is essential to that preterist view because if Revelation is a prophecy forward-looking at all and it's predicting the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans in AD 70, then it has to be written before that. Otherwise, it's not predictive prophecy anymore. So there are some who advocate for this earlier view during the reign of Nero and then for those who interpret that or have that as the historical situation, generally speaking, understand it in a preterist or past way, referring to the events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Having said that, that is a pretty 
minority view among Christian scholars. But there are arguments for it. I'm not convinced of them, but there are arguments for it. But then the other, really the dominant view that has really been held by the vast majority of Christians throughout the centuries is that it was written after AD 90, probably in the mid-90s during the reign of Domitian. And the reign of Domitian, also the emperor of Rome during the Roman Empire, from what we know from historical sources outside the Bible, as well as from the book of Revelation, was also a time of persecution among God's people, the Christians. So that situation would also fit with that time period. And along with this, um, this date of 80, 90, maybe mid-90s, 1995, we have a very early testimony by a church father, a church teacher named Irenaeus, who lived in the second century AD, so really just a few decades after this time. And he wrote, we have his writing that says, John received this revelation that is recorded in the, book, in the Bible during the latter part of Domitian's reign. So Irenaeus specifically mentions the reign of Domitian as when John received this revelation on the Isle of Patmos. So that testimony of Irenaeus, as well as other internal content things related to Revelation, the vast majority of interpreters have seen it as written later, AD 90. Then another big historical question is, why was Revelation written? What, what was the historical situation that, that gave rise to it? When you read the letters of Paul, say Philippians, Ephesians, even Romans, generally speaking, when a New Testament author like Paul or Peter or James, they write a letter to a church or a group of churches, there's some occasion or some situation that brought it about. They, they heard about something, they got a report about something, somebody came and visited them, told them something that was going on in the church, they got news of false teaching maybe that was making its way into that region some kind of situation gave rise to writing that letter because the apostle was not in a position where he could just drop everything and leave and go visit them. So he wanted to address whatever situation that was, but could not physically go and visit them. So he would send a letter. Revelation is written as a letter. And so what's the situation? Well, from what we know, one is it was an intense time of persecution. That's clear from the book of Revelation. It's an intense time of persecution. Um, another thing that gave rise to the letter, obviously when we read through it, is Jesus told him to write it. So not only is there this historical situation where persecution is happening and it's on the rise and, and probably on the eve of even more intense persecution, but the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the island of Patmos and said, here's my revelation. I want you to write this. Even if there was no other historical situation going on, that's enough to sit down and write something. If the Lord Jesus shows up and says, I want you to write this to the churches. So the Lord Jesus told him to do it, but there was also a situation going on that needed it. And the Lord knew that. He knows what his churches need. And so he came and gave this message to John. So there is this uh, occasion or this purpose for writing. And I, and I think... 
as we go through Revelation, and I want to emphasize this, is that one of the main purposes of the book of Revelation is to give those Christians encouragement and hope. To give those Christians encouragement and hope because they're facing this persecution, they're facing this opposition, they're, they're facing world powers that are against them. Caesar, from the top down, persecuting Christians, governors, regional authorities. And then on top of that, you have unbelieving Jews who did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They're piling on as well with persecution. And so they're, they're a beaten down, poor, discouraged church. Church is seven of them that Revelation is written to you. And so I think a primary encouragement or a primary purpose is to encourage them, to give them hope, to give them uh, endurance, which is another main theme of Revelation is enduring, persevering through this persecution, these trials. So there is a, a purpose. So we have a historical context, but we also have a geographical context. We have a geographical context. Probably none of us, maybe maybe one or two, but I don't know of anybody in this room who's ever been to the Middle East. I don't, I don't know anybody who's been to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, to the island of Patmos, or to the country of Turkey, which is where modern-day Turkey is the location of where all seven of these churches are that John was writing to. So Ephesus, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Thyatira, all these churches of the first century, they're all located in what is today Turkey but was a, the initial launch pad of the global church because that's where Paul spent a large part of his missionary activity. And so Paul had been to these cities, established churches there. Other apostles like John had been there, visited them. Uh, these are, these are center, central churches to the, the uh, launching out of Christianity to the world. One author called them epicenter churches. These are, you know, like an epicenter, an earthquake. It's like it hits here, but then the effects go outward. These are epicenter churches like Ephesus and Smyrna. These are large centers, economic business centers, travel, trade, ideas. Things ripple out from these cities. And so they're important. That's why Paul visited them and sought to establish churches there. But we don't know a whole lot about these areas. One thing that is clear is that all seven of these cities are really close together and if you look at the order in which they appear in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, it appears that what happened is this book of Revelation became a circular letter. In other words, it started in Ephesus and they made a copy of it and sent it on to the next church. They made a copy of it and sent it on to the next church. This is before Xerox machines, right? So. No computers, no printers, no copy machines, not even fax machines. You know, how old school is that, right? Fax machines, they didn't even have that. So everything was done by hand. It was costly. It was time-consuming. And so Paul, John wrote one copy. Maybe two. Maybe he kept one for himself. We have no idea. But most likely he, read, he wrote a copy and sent it on and sent it by hands of a messenger. Ephesus receives it, they see the importance of it, they make a copy of it, and they send it along to the next church. It kind of makes the round in a circle through those seven churches. And, and then we also have 
you know, where was Revelation written? It tells us John was on the Isle of Patmos when he received this, this vision, this revelation from the Lord. So he's on this island in the Mediterranean Sea, Patmos. And from what we understand from what John says, as well as from early church history, he was likely uh, exiled there as kind of like a, a punishment. Uh, he was as a part of his persecution for preaching the name of Christ. So he was exiled to this island of Patmos, kind of like an island prison. Maybe think of like old Australia, you know, send all the prisoners there. Uh, this is where John was on the island, but apparently still had access to people coming to visit him and he could write this letter and send it out. Much like Paul when he was in prison, he could still send letters out to the churches. So John writes this from the Isle of Patmos and where was this received and read? It was first received and read in Ephesus. And then the six other churches in that circular uh, route. And the reason this is important is when we open up a book of the Bible, most of us immediately start reading it through the lenses of 2022, me, Alabama, United States of America. But we can't start there. We have to start in order to really understand what the Bible's saying. We have to, to the best of our ability, put ourselves in the shoes or the sandals of a first century Christian in Ephesus. What are they dealing with? What are they going through? What, what's happening to them? What's going on in their lives? What's going on in their church? What's going on in their city? What's going on in their fellowship of believers? What's going on geopolitically, you know, from Rome, from Caesar, from the regional powers? You kind of have to put yourself as best you can by, by reading some historical sources, reading some maybe Bible dictionary articles. You know, what, what were they going through? What was a, a, a person, a Christian in Ephesus dealing with in AD 90 or 95? That's where it was first read and that's where it was first sent to. We have to understand it through their eyes before we can rightly understand it for us today. So we need this geographical context, but we also need a cultural context, kind of understand uh, what's going on. And this goes closely to some of the things that I just mentioned, things like uh, a political situation. Who's in power? What's going on? What, what's, what's going on you know, politically, governmentally? Uh, you can even see this in the crucifixion of Christ that one of the reasons why Pilate did what he did was political reasons, wasn't it? Uh, Pilate, you know, Jesus comes and stands before him and Pilate says several times, I don't find anything worthy of condemning this man. He eventually washes his hands of the situation and gave into the people, gave into their demands. Why? Because he didn't want to upset the apple cart politically, you know, like a lot of politicians do. It's like, I'm not going to stand up for what's right. I'm going to do what the people want and what's popular. I'm going to take a poll, right? Instead of voting my conscience, let's take a poll and see what people think. That's kind of what Pilate did. And he went with the crowd. He went with the, the, the loudest voices. And here's the thing. There's really no indication that the, that the majority of people in Jerusalem at that time wanted Jesus to be persecuted. But the loudest ones did. What does that remind you of today? Twitter, Facebook, 
right? Not necessarily majority, but the loud ones get the attention, right? Well, in Jesus' day, the loud ones got the attention and they got what they wanted and Pilate gave in to them and Jesus was crucified. That was, that's a political situation that was going on at that time. So what, what, what are the people of Ephesus dealing with in their situation? Um, what about, you know, socially? Socially, culturally, what does it look like to be in Ephesus in 95? Well, one of the things we'll see and especially as we read the, the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, is if you were a, um, a tradesman, a craftsman, a lot of these cities had guilds where you had to be a member of this guild to practice that craft or practice that trade. I mean, it's not a whole lot different from today where, you know, if you're going to be a contractor, you got to have a license, you know, you got to have these credentials. Well, in the ancient world, if you were going to practice being a silversmith or whatever, you were part of a guild. Well, the problem is a lot of these guilds were pagan and they were wrapped up with pagan worship and idolatry and worshiping and offering sacrifices to false gods and sexual immorality and all, all sorts of things. And so, but if you were a Christian and you didn't want to become a part of that, you faced the very real possibility of losing your business losing your trade if you were excluded from these things. So socially, what does it look like to be in Ephesus in the first century? Um, and then the religious situation, kind of what I mentioned a moment ago is every single one of these cities and the whole uh, Roman world at this time, whether it be Ephesus or Smyrna, Thyatira, wherever it is, the dominant religion of those cities was Greek-Roman polytheism. So you remember from school learning about all these Greek and Roman gods. You know, for us, that's just literature or history. For them, in that time, that was their religion. That was their faith. And instead of having, you know, a Baptist or a Methodist church on every corner like we have in the South, they had temples to Diana or Artemis or Zeus. And that was their culture. That was their religious setting. And so we have to think about it through those eyes. Uh, that, you know, Baptist religious culture wasn't dominant <laughs> in the first century in Ephesus. It, it was Greek-Roman polytheism, paganism. So their religious situation. But then I think another one that I really I think a lot of people miss, but it's really important to understanding the book of Revelation is the literary context. The literary context. And that has to do with what genre or type of literature is Revelation. This is so important to interpreting the Bible. Because you can't just pick up the Bible, flip it open wherever it lands, and just start reading that place the same as you would read it in another place. You would not read a proverb the same as you would a law. A law, say in Exodus, is a command of God. This is something that you do. You have to obey this. A proverb is a general observation about life. It is its wisdom observed, filtered through divine revelation, but uh, things you read in Proverbs don't always necessarily happen. 
For example, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. I think that proverb has been misunderstood by a lot of Christians because they think of that as some inviolable law. It's not. It's a general wisdom saying, an observation about life, that generally speaking, what you put into a child when they're growing up, that will result in what they become when they're older. But we know exceptions. You know, you can have the best parents in the world and that child still go off the path when they're older. But generally speaking, wisdom, you see this observably in life, is that when you raise kids right, they do right. But there are exceptions to that. So you don't read a proverb the same as a law. You don't read a parable of Jesus the same way that you read a letter of Paul. So there are different types of literature. We, we read them differently. We, we need to read them differently. It's the same thing today. So if I handed you two types of literature and just gave them to you, you would immediately know how to read them by their physical form in our culture. If I handed you a newspaper and I handed you a paperback novel, you would immediately, without even thinking about it, apply different interpretive hermeneutical rules to how you read those documents, wouldn't you? Without even thinking about it. You read the newspaper, a news story, and at least ideally, you're reading fact, right? You're, you're reading that which has happened, which is true, okay? real events, real people, real situations. But you know when you're reading a novel, a, a book of fiction, that none of this is real. This is just a story that somebody made up. We instinctively do that. So we have novels, we have papers, we have history books, we have technical manuals. You know, we have different genres that we just instinctively understand because they're a part of our culture. What's not a part of our culture are books like Revelation. So we don't have literature like Revelation in our normal everyday culture, so we're not used to reading it like we're used to reading our kinds of literature today. So we have to think about it, and we have to apply certain rules to how we understand it and how we interpret it. Um, and so literary type genre is, is very, very important. And the thing that makes Revelation unique is that it's not just one genre. It's kind of a hybrid genre of three different, three different subgenres, if I could put it that way. It's part letter. So beginning in like John 1 verse 4, I think, it starts the way any letter of Paul would. John, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the seven churches in Asia, it starts just like a letter of Paul to the churches. It's a letter. It even tells us who the churches are that it was written to, these seven churches in Asia. Um, so there are many parts of it that are in the shape of a, a letter, like Paul's. But on top of that, it is also a prophecy. So it's a letter that also doubles as prophecy, predicting that which is coming. And then you add a third layer on top of that, it is apocalyptic. 
What does apocalyptic mean? Well, the Greek word apocalypso or apocalypsis is the word that opens Revelation 1.1. The apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. It's translated Revelation. And an apocalypsis is literally something that you pull back the curtains. So you, you reveal. So it is, but then when you talk about apocalyptic literature, it has certain characteristics, both in and outside the Bible. See, here's the thing to, to think about is, Paul writes a letter. Okay, he writes it to the church in Ephesus. There were other people in the first century who wrote letters, right? But they didn't make it in the Bible. But we have some of those letters. And we can compare and see the forms, just like we have a form for our letter, dear so-and-so, date, sincerely. You know, we have that form for a letter. The ancient letters had much the same form, and Paul's letters match up with a lot of secular letters that people would write in terms of their form. Well, there's also apocalyptic literature that is not in the Bible that has certain tendencies, certain characteristics. One of them is a heavy presence of angelic beings. Angels giving visions, angels giving messages, um, angels doing God's bidding, doing things. You read the book of Revelation and angels are all over the place. Probably more in Revelation than any other book of the Bible. That, that's a component of apocalyptic literature. Another component of, of apocalyptic literature is a very heavy use of symbolism and numbers used symbolically with meaning. So you have symbols like dragons and beasts with multiple heads and multiple horns and you have different, all these different symbols throughout Revelation. But they mean something, it's almost like a, a, a legend. You know, you read a, a map and at the top there's a legend and it's like these dots represent a highway. You know, it's when you come across this um, beast, generally in Revelation, that means a king or a kingdom. Okay, so it is, it's symbolic, but the symbols mean something. Some of those symbols are interpreted inside Revelation itself. Jesus, it says in Revelation 1, the one who holds the stars in his right hand. What does that mean? Well, the stars are the seven churches, it tells us. So the symbol is interpreted right away for us in Revelation. Some of the symbols are not immediately interpreted for us in Revelation. That's where the trouble comes in. But they mean something. So heavy use of angels, heavy use of symbolism, lots of numbers in apocalyptic literature, lots of numbers in Revelation, lots of use of seven or multiples of seven, lots of use of 10 or multiples of 10, uh, fractions, a third of this, a fourth of this, a half of this, uh, lots of multiples or, or divisors of 12. Uh, so all over the book of Revelation. That's common in apocalyptic literature. The other thing that's common in apocalyptic literature is some travail, some turmoil, some tragedy, some persecution that God is in charge of cosmically over the universe. And so in apocalyptic literature, this, 
this event, this tragedy, this, this situation is set up against the backdrop of the universal reign of God and the final judgment of God. And you see that in Revelation. Some things that some apocalyptic literature has, but I don't think Revelation has, is um, much apocalyptic literature is pseudonymous, meaning a false name or a false author. So, for example, we have an apocalyptic book outside the Bible called First Enoch. Enoch didn't write it because Enoch lived in the time of Genesis. This book was written centuries, centuries later after the time of Enoch, but it's given Enoch's name. It's clearly pseudonymous. It's, it, Enoch didn't write it. Biblical apocalypses like Revelation or the book of Daniel do not share that similarity with non-biblical apocalypses. I believe John wrote this. I believe Daniel wrote Daniel. So many similarities between biblical and non-biblical apocalyptic literature, but some things that are not the same. So when we read Revelation, we have to keep in mind all of these genres and different ways of, of understanding a writing based on what type of literature it is. With Revelation, you kind of have to put a three-layered lens over the top of it of letter, prophecy, apocalypse. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie National Treasure, but in the, there's a scene in National Treasure where he's got these special bifocals, right? These special glasses. And depending on which lens he pushes up, he can see different things on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Sorry to spoil the movie for you, but it's been out long enough. Um, so he realizes that there's more to it because you can put different layers on top of it. So in a way, to really see the whole thing of Revelation, you need all three of these layers of, of reading through this. It's a letter from John to the churches. It deals with prophecy, the predictive, but there's also, it's in this form of apocalyptic literature, which is very symbolic and uh, numerical symbolism and, and all of this. And so you have to wrestle through all of that. So there is this literary context. Yeah. Would you really tell me this uh, Revelation, the longer Revelation 19? Yeah. When you, he sees this horse. Yeah. Red, white horse. Yeah. Is, is that the apocalyptic? The, yes. So, so we're, like when we think of an apocalypse, you know, we're where we use the word apocalypse in our common vocabulary, we're thinking of like a doomsday scenario or like the end of time or the end of history, something like that. It comes from this apocalyptic type literature where usually in this apocalyptic type literature you have some kind of battle, some kind of triumph at the end. Um, and in biblical apocalyptic literature, the triumph is by Christ. You know, the triumph is by the Lord. And, and so there's this there's this kind of climactic end of history in which Jesus is victorious and, and he reigns. And, and that's, so it's all building toward that in the book of Revelation. But yeah, that's, that's definitely, when we think of apocalypse, we think of, you know, end of history, big event, uh, you know, end of the world, doomsday type scenario. But this is describing a, a Jesus. His return. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's uh, so that you know the question is how symbolic is that? Will he really be on a horse? You know. 
you, you compare that with the Gospels, it says he'll come on the clouds of heaven. You don't see a horse mentioned there, you know. So it could be that the horse is just a symbol of conquering, a symbol of victory, you know, like uh, coming out of warfare or battle, you know, victorious. It's white, symbolizing purity, you know, righteousness, honor. So, so that, those are the type of things that we have to wrestle with, you know, in, in, in reading these symbols. Um, but, and again, we're not always going to come to a consensus agreement on what all these symbols mean. That's why you have all these different viewpoints on Revelation. Um, and I really, I really need to stop. <laughs> I've got more to my slides, but uh, I've been going at it for about 45 minutes. So for, for our uh, patients, as well as uh, those who may be viewing, uh, we're going to take a time out here and uh, we'll pick up again next time. And you say, you know, I just want to get into it. You know, I just want to get into Revelation 1.1. Let's just start reading it, understanding it. But that's where you run into trouble and end up, I think, with bad understandings of what the book means because we're not, we're not thinking about these things and giving them enough weight when we read through Revelation. So these things may seem more academic, you know, more maybe boring, <laughs> hopefully not, but they're, they're really important. It's, it's almost kind of like, you know, you open up a package and you see all these parts and you're like, ah, oh, I just put it together. No, you know, guys, we may not always want to do it, but read the directions, right? Read the directions and, and you realize, oh, this thing that I thought went here because that's how it looked actually goes over here in this part. And if we think about Revelation that way, kind of read the directions first, maybe think about what kind of literature it is, the historical context, think about the situation in which it was written. Hopefully we can come to the end and have you know, a cohesive building put together of what Revelation is teaching us. So I, I think these things are important. And, and I hope even this, what we've talked about, has been helpful and encouraging to you. Um, let's pray and then uh, we will have a time of prayer requests and prayer together. Father, thank you for the time that we've had just to look at these important kind of introductory things um, before we launch into the study of this important book. Lord, we pray your blessings on future weeks as we study this book of Revelation. We want to understand it, Lord, and uh, we want to make much of you and much of your son, the Lord Jesus. So Lord, give us insight and understanding and bless these times together. In Jesus' name, amen.